Enthusiasts Podcast. On this episode, the truth about sustainable fuels. JTCPodcast.com. Hiya, Wayne Scott with you for another episode, episode 95, by the way, of the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast, the podcast that brings the stories that we present to you in Jaguar Enthusiast magazine, the biggest Jaguar magazine on the planet, can I just say. We bring those stories to life, and it's great to have you here. Thanks to all the many listeners who join us every single episode, over 10,000 of you now worldwide being an amazing part of the Jaguar community around the globe. As here in the UK, we're kind of coming to the end of what has been an incredible summer season, what has been a really busy September as well. Not only have we launched the whole new look to Jaguar Enthusiast magazine, but also we've been out and about. Silverstone Festival, incredible event that we had there with the amazing MRL Big Cat Race on Sunday morning. You can read all about that in the new issue of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine. And there were some real action as well proper sideways e-types that's what you can read about in the october issue an incredible event down the road from there at blenheim palace for salon privé where we had some club members especially e-types and xj8 owners taking away awards from the salon privé judges also hampton court where lofty england's e-type was sold record breaking for a production e-type went for a massive 911 1250 pounds which is a world record for a production e-type only the lightweights have beaten that number at auction jaguars at gaydon was fantastic once again a brilliant event put on by jaguar daimler heritage trust and it was great to be in the arena with keith helfit talking about the xj220 his design work on that also the early work on the f-type that started way back at the end of the 1970s with the XJ41 and XJ42 concept cars, right the way through to all of those various concepts that went through Jaguar before the CX-16 and ultimately the F-Type that was launched 10 years ago. You can see the video from that talk and the talk I gave on the 1953 Le Mans with the Hamilton family and Stuart Rolt, who is, of course, the son of Tony Rolt, who won famously in the C-Type. 70 years ago it's all online on youtube of course also available for you in the friday spotlight e-newsletter as well however this podcast very excited to be talking very optimistically it has to be said about the future of classic cars and in particular getting the truth about sustainable fuel for our classics and to talk to the people behind the sustain classic sustainable fuel brand that is now available from our friends motor spirit at bista heritage guy lachlan down there supplying this and we're going to be joined by pioneering renewable fuel specialist Coriton, who recently launched the uk's first publicly available sustainable fuel and it's a fuel that could secure the future of the classic car movement and historic motorsport as well the Sustain Classic range allows regular combustion engines in our Jaguars to be fueled by environmentally friendly plant-based petrol without the need for any engine modifications. And there are already classic cars on our roads using this fuel, and a number of rallies and motorsport events have also utilised it as well. They were out at Goodwood just a couple of weeks ago with cars running on this fuel. It's real, it's happening. So in this episode 95 of this podcast, we speak to Andrew Wilson, CEO of Coriton, and their business development director, David Richardson, about their vision of the future, the detail behind how this fuel is made and where it's sourced from, and how it might be scaled up for future use. There's a lot of optimism, a bit of realism, but an awful lot also of innovation in this podcast. So we hope you'll enjoy the insights that it offers. Our interview with Coriton next. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast podcast, we're talking about the future 
and of course Jaguar itself as a manufacturer is well and truly headed towards the all-electric future and of course EVs very much a part of Jaguar's lineup in modern vehicles but where does that leave us with our historic Jaguars and in particular after the possible date of 2030 when manufacturers are all going to be having to supply new cars as EVs or other alternative fuels to the internal combustion engine how do we ensure that there is a supply of fuel for our historic vehicles going forward well one company that has uh, one of the solutions and a great insight into what the future might look like is Coriton and we have uh, two people from Coriton on with us this week and it is David Richardson hi David hi there and uh, Andrew Wilson. Uh, starting with you then, Andrew, give us a bit of a background on Coriton. Some people may have heard of you before. Some people may have read all sorts of things about the sustainable fuels debate that's going on in the historic vehicle press at the moment. So um, start off with how the company came about. Where did it all begin? Coriton is um, a fuel technology business. It was born out of um, what was an R&D facility that was created and run by BP, um, associated with what was the Coriton oil refinery in Essex. That refinery no longer is. Um, that's been demolished and is now the Thames Enterprise Park. But we are very much still there um, and very much still a thriving business. We were founded in 2010. Um, and... Uh, focus on producing uh, really quite technically advanced fuels for specialist applications. And that can range across a number of sectors for a number of uses. Um, one of our key focus areas has actually been in motorsport. And we, we do actually have a very long um, heritage in motorsport, um, working at the very high end. Um, we are uh, slightly subject to confidentiality on many of those sort of aspects of what we do, and therefore I can't really go into that an awful lot. But you know, suffice to say that um, we are probably, you know, one of the leading experts on motorsport fuels, um, as well as many other um, fuels that we have developed over the years um, for many applications, whether it be. Uh, test um, or development purposes, or first fill purposes, or for a number of a number of uses. Um, Coriton, uh, and as you said, Wayne, it um, is possibly a company and a business that a number of people might not have heard about. Um, we were perhaps not well known up until only two or three years ago, when we started to actually promote ourselves. Um, quite a lot on social media channels, primarily to raise awareness about Coriton and what we do, but specifically to start talking about some of the work that we had done within the field of sustainable fuels and wanting to raise awareness about <laughs> sustainable fuels um, and what they could um, deliver as a prospective solution going forwards and um, associated with that I think one big event that we were involved with that many of your listeners may have seen and associated with us was the Dakar rally um, which was possibly the first um, sort of high profile application of a sustainable fuel that we were involved with um, in 2022 and also this year in, uh, um, in 2023, um, where we uh, mainly we were associated with the ProDive BRX team um, that competed and did extremely well in both years running on, running on a sustainable fuel. Um, and that effectively showcased uh, what we could do, um, but also how a sustainable fuel could perform but possibly most importantly, what it could also do for the environment, um, you know, in, in terms of dealing with um, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and that's that's a little complicated area. I, I, I will hand over to David to talk about that one linked or with actually, I know what you're sort of focusing on, which are um, fuels that we've developed and are now 
promoting under our <clears throat> sustain classic product brand, which is very relevant for I think your um, your Jaguar Heritage Flink that you've you've just referred to. Um, so Coriton is about 12, 13 years old um, as 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 a business, but I would say we're much more advanced than that already in terms of you know the combined years of experience that we have with our technical team here um, on fuel development, um, but also in terms of what we've done with our customer base in um, very many sectors around, as I say, all of these specific applications for um, for advanced fuels. Um, so at, at that point, let me let me hand over to David, uh, unless Wayne, obviously you want to sort of jump in with a question on any of that, but I can hand over and perhaps sort of explain what we've specifically done around um, fuels or classic car use. Well, before, David, you, you just come on there, what I will just just draw attention to there is, is what you said there about having been 12 to 13 years old. Yeah. And that's quite a, a surprise to a lot of people listening, I would think, because I think it's fair to say we haven't really, in the historic vehicle world, taken the idea of um, alternative fuels really that seriously until really the last sort of three, four, maybe five years. But you guys have been plugging away in the background doing this way before any of us started to lay awake at night, didn't you really? Well, we have, and I think we recognised many, many years ago that um, sustainable fuels were going to become very relevant going forward. And it was partly why um, we chose to actually, we actually chose to rebrand Coriton uh, and change our image slightly and also our sort of our vision for the future um, around working towards a sustainable future, one in which we could play a part um, in relation to hydrocarbon fuels. And I know that sounds like a misnomer, really, in the yeah. fact, how can a hydrocarbon fuel actually be sustainable? But it can. Um, and as I say, we, you know, we saw an opportunity, or we saw a necessity, I should say, really, about six to seven years ago to start looking um, at what sustainable fuel components were available and how we could look to incorporate those into the fuels we were doing. And at that time... It was really more focused on motorsport use because it was it was quite clear at that point that motorsport was going to go in that direction that there was a, there was a need for it to do so because in many people's eyes motorsport can be viewed as a bit of a frivolous activity you know one it, and also one which is uh, you know not particularly um, kind to the to the environment in terms of you know obviously its overall impact um, on the climate and you know there's been a lot of discussion how motorsport had to address that perception that image you know and change and you know we have been working for many years in preparing ourselves for that to you know to understand actually what is available in terms of sustainable com components and and I, I would add that that is still relatively limited um but more importantly what you can do with those components to be able to create um, either fully sustainable or partially sustainable fuels and we now have you know a full suite um of products of fuel products that can be applied in many in many uses use cases whether it be in motorsport or actually in general use as well um you know so we do have i i would say um as you, as you said wayne you know only 13 years but half of that time we have been focusing on sustainable components and i and i think we've built up uh you know a knowledge bank and and some real expertise within our technical um, uh, team um, around, um, you know, these components and sustainable fuels in, in, in general. 
Well, let's talk about motorsport uh, a little bit later on because, of course, we're here with a sort of a, a kind of contrasting reason for doing all these things. On the one hand, motorsport has a great um, ability to test, prove and develop the motor car into this new era. But on the other hand, and probably from the point of view that most of our listeners are coming from there's the heritage aspect of being able to preserve heritage enjoy transport heritage into the future and not just have things behind a velvet rope in a museum but before we get on to all of that let's take it a little bit further back just to technology now and help us to understand david if you can um what are we talking about here how is this stuff made what's the technology behind it what do we need to understand about what this fuel actually is no thanks uh, thanks wayne um I, I think it you know on its basic principle what we're doing is recycling carbon um and you know i've, I've just spent the last uh, few days at goodwood revival sort of explaining this type of thing to um Quite, quite a number of people, which is great because it shows a lot of interest. But um, the, the basic principle there is that you've got two distinct ways that you can recycle that carbon. Either you can rely on mechanical means to do that, um, and, and that is, you know, like scrubbing carbon from um, uh, from 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 the air, from direct uh, capture, uh, or from directly from industry, <clears throat> and then using electrolysis to split water and and, and take your high hydrogen uh, molecule. Um, or you can rely on Mother Nature to do the heavy lifting for you, um, which for us at this point in time is is one of the better routes for us to um, be concentrating on because it's an easily scalable product. Um, and just to give you sort of some context uh, uh, around that element of it and, and, and explain why um, the, these sort of technologies can can work or, or, or how is it that Mother Nature is sort of doing this carbon scrubbing for us. The, the, the premise there is that if you can ferment something, uh, and you know we've had, we've all had thousands of years worth of um, practice at fermenting various biomass um, in the world, you can very easily turn that into a. Um, we, we we call it a a, a, a biohydrocarbon um, as opposed to maybe a, a biopetrol at this stage because we we still do a lot of sort of fettling. Um, with these components as they come through to us, but you know, if, if you're thinking that um, biomass is, you know, is it's a it's a fungible product, there, um, it's already got locked away um, within that biomass. The the three main elements that we need to make fuels, which are well, it's actually the two main elements that we need, which is carbon and hydrogen. Um, it doesn't take a genius to work out when you put carbon and hydrogen together, you get hydrocarbon. So carbon is not all bad. Um, carbon is actually very, very important to us. Um, it's just about where that carbon is coming from. And fossil, um, it clearly has lots of carbon locked away in it. Um, unfortunately, um, when we pull that carbon out the ground, we're, we're adding additional carbon to the atmosphere when we then burn that. So what we're looking to do is recycle the carbon that's already in the atmosphere um, by allowing plants to grow uh, and taking the waste elements from um, industries such as agriculture, uh, food processing, things like starch slurries, um, vapory wastes, as I said, anything that you can ferment, turning that into a fuel, burning it in an internal combustion engine, um, and then you've got your re-releasing CO2 from the tailpipe. Now, it's so, important so you're to using, David, then you're using... Um waste products already then as the source material because one of the criticisms of all this is that oh it's going to take all of our land away for making food of course but actually this is already a waste material then it, it is absolutely and, and it is really important people understand that we we are not looking um to to you know to compete with food crop um where you know where you know we're already you know there are already problems within the world of starvation um, and, and, and sort of competing, for, you know, fuel for food. And so that's not what we're doing. What we're looking to do is, is take any waste crops. So we, we, when, when we talk about waste, we, we refer to second generation feedstocks as, as our waste crops. So this could be anything, as I said, it could be anything that's been churned back into soil, ending up in municipal waste. Um, where and actually where, you know, when you start to allow things to um, sort of compost, um, you're creating methane. Uh, and methane from a global warming perspective is is significantly i mean you're sort of 10 times plus worse than co2 is so actually by by taking that waste turning it into a commodity which is is actually very good for 
those that are generating the waste. Um, you know, you can take that, process it, turn it into a fuel. You're removing the methane emissions, um, and at the same time, you're removing additional CO2 um, impact into the environment by not taking the fossil out of the ground as well. So, you know, th there's there's a win for, for all stakeholders at that point, you know, from, as I said, from the farmers maybe, um, who find use as a waste and, and are valuing that waste, not creating the methane, someone to process it, and then obviously having a effectively a, a, a fuel that has a, a significantly lower carbon impact um, than than what is currently being used. So that that's that's what we're trying to do, and we we can utilise a number of those technologies, and there's slight variations on on those. Um, and you know when we get hold of them, we can work our magic um, at our facility and and turn them into as I said fuels that ha that are suitable for varying different applications um as, as andrew was alluding to earlier on we you know we we actually make thousands of different types of fuels every year and that might be quite surprising um and the easiest way i like to sort of, sort of put it out here it was giving you an example of that is that when someone goes in you know asks for a bottle of red wine you know well okay you've got red wine you've got red wine and you've got all the vintages within that somewhere fuel is very much the same um we've got very different vintages of fuels that we create for different applications, as I said, it could be for leisure, leisure marine. It could be for the top end of motorsport. It could, or quite um, simply, is what we're here for today is to talk about those fuels that are technically uh, advanced fuels for the classic motorist um, to to look after those very expensive assets that um, that we all love so much. Presumably, though, taking those substances and putting them through a process that creates what you need to create the base for your fuel takes a significant amount of energy in itself so where does that energy come from um so that is uh, quite a common misconception um certainly in the terms of bio-derived products because uh, we'll go back to this point i made that we're starting off with a fungible product so we've already got locked away um through mother nature's magic uh our carbon and hydrogen molecules and we, we, when we put that through, and we put it through what's called a, a, a two-stage catalytic process, um, which, which effectively sort of pulls those molecules apart. It releases the oxygen molecule um, from the, from the, from what is the alcohol at that stage, um, back to the atmosphere, um, and it reforms the carbon and hydrogen through a, through a process called oligomerization. <laughs> uh, it's a lovely word to get your tongue around. Um, but That's got to be worth what, loads in Scrabble, that one. Absolutely. So, so apparently what, what you're doing there is, is that you're reforming the bonds uh, of the carbon, you know, putting the carbon and hydrogen back together, and you're stretching them back out through that process, um, which gives you all the speciation. And when we talk about speciation, we're talking about the individual, I suppose the DNA of the fuel, um, it, it sort of forms that DNA of the of the of biohydrocarbon, which is very very similar to that of a fossil, uh, and this is a really important factor because it means that when these products that we're creating have the same um, sort of base properties as as a fossil, um, sort of petrol or diesel does, um, which therefore means that um, from a, a compatibility perspective, um, they they are. Uh, by and large a drop-in product um, and, and in some cases we can actually make those perform better than some of the, the existing fossil fuels that you may well see on the roads today especially in the likes of the classic vehicle market um, where you know we're very keen about making sure that again we talk about those protecting those assets making sure there's no undesirable elements left in the fuel uh, in fact adding elements into there to um to protect the the engines and the fuel systems and so that the vehicles can be stored over a long period of time and uh, you know it's important to note that this is a fuel that throughout its process goes straight into an engine as it works today there's no converting bits that you need to bolt on like we used to do with lpg and jaguars back in the day or anything like that it goes straight yeah. in the tank doesn't it, it it, it it does, um, and, and and that's the real key. You know, really key thing about this is what this one is that you're you're creating a liquid, as I said, that is is almost chemically identical to to a fossil product, which means that the infrastructure that you have around that we've built, you know, spent 150 years building up, you can continue to use that infrastructure because creating new infrastructure, uh, you know, be it for you know uh, you know charging points or or, or you know um, upgrading the grid. Is incredibly carbon intensive, um, and, and therefore, actually, you can 
you know, you can hand on heart say, actually, this is a far, far better solution um, in order to stop carbon loading the atmosphere and, and just deal with the issue at heart or at hand today with the existing fleet. I, I'm just going to come back to that process just because it may well have escaped a part around, you know, the energy intensity of the product. I mentioned, obviously, we've got, you know, Mother Nature's done a lot of the heavy lifting for us, therefore we don't need to put a lot of energy in. Part of that process is exothermic as well. Uh, and the great thing about the exothermic reaction and the plants is that you recover all of that heat. So it effectively powers itself uh, on that one. Now, there are other technologies, um, and I, I mentioned, obviously, we've got this mechanical way of doing it. And, and again, that's where this sort of this misconception has come across from thinking that all sustainable fuel, you know, uses lots of energy. So there is one, uh, and we talk about sort of synthetic or e-fuels. Now they, they they do clearly use a lot of energy to do that because you're you're having to, you know, mechanically extract air. You have to run an electrolyzer. But but then those processes in themselves aren't necessarily a problem as long as you are powering them from renewable energy. And the key thing about these these types of facilities is that they are designed to be situated in locations where there is an abundance of renewable energy that you cannot otherwise transport via cables. Um, and, and and just to you know really sort of quickly give you you know people an idea of why that matters is that transporting electricity via cables is, is not as, as simple as as you might well think. Not least because there's a lot of mining that goes into the copper cable that's needed. And to distribute significant quantities of energy over very long distances um, it means cabling and digging of quite substantial sizes. But it means that you can harness, by, by creating a liquid from the energy, you can very easily store, use the liquid as an energy storage. Um, and and that, that's, that's, that's something maybe to get your head around, is that, that think of the liquid as nothing more than an energy carrier or an energy store in that effect. So it doesn't necessarily matter that it's a particularly inefficient process as long as you are using the energy from a renewable source that is not otherwise competing uh, for energy from the grid that may well serve towns, villages, cities. Um, much like you know, you might well see plants down in Chile from Porsche, for instance, um, those that may be being set up in very sort of hot parts of Spain or even or even um, over in the Middle East as well. So. Every, every every type of technology has its place. Uh, and, and ultimately, I think those ones will probably be the dominant uh, technology long-term because of the effective abundance of the feedstocks, be it the CO2 in the atmosphere and water from the sea. I guess there'll be some people listening right now saying, okay, get all of that, brilliant. Uh, so... Why on earth are we bothering with EVs? Let's just do this. This is a much better idea. <laughs> um, I guess one of the problems is scale, is it not? Um, it is. And um, I'm, I always come to this sort of answer with um, uh, a sort of warning. Um, and that is, don't underestimate how much oil we currently dig out of the ground to satisfy our energy needs. It is absolutely enormous. And to think that we can choose any one singular technology to displace that, that effective, abundant energy source is a ludicrous idea. It will, it will just simply not happen. The only way you will do that is to have multiple nuclear um, plants around the world producing significantly more, more, um, uh, more energy. And therefore, when we think about our transportation needs at the moment, you know, we have globally there's over a billion vehicles on the road. In Europe, there's over 270 million. You know, in the UK, it's over 34 million vehicles. To try and replace all of those with an, with an electric source of, of propulsion is exceptionally hard. And to do it in such short timescales is simply not achievable. And it won't be achieved at all. And I, and I we fully understand that um, there's... Or, you know, every automotive manufacturer that you will speak to or read about will absolutely be saying, no, we're going fully electric. I have no doubt in my mind that there there will be a point where they say, do you know what, we will still have an internal combustion engine past 2035 for sale in some form or another as part of the mix of um, transportation um, solutions available to them simply because there isn't the resource 
to uh, to to electrify everything, and there isn't time to electrify everything by that point as well. So, you know, unfortunately, there were arbitrary dates. It's nice to have a date to work towards, but you've got to be realistic. And and some of the downsides of that is actually it can also hamper other technologies from getting the investment that they should need. You know, they need. I mean. All these technologies that I talk about, using the bio-based products to, to make advanced bios or, use, or, or setting up e-fuel plants, have been suffering from a lack of investment because it's been viewed that EVs will be the only technology for transport going forward. And that simply isn't the case. We will not meet those. And, and I think if we were open and honest with, the, you know, with ourselves three, four, five years ago, we would have had an even spread of, of investment targeting all of the solutions not just one singular solution and we would reach our goals in a far far quicker time why do you think we have that tunnel vision around evs then as as the only solution does that come from from the the leadership from the government or from the public's understanding when why has all that happened do you think i i, I strongly think it's a mix of all of what you've just said um uh you know the, the public won't necessarily understand that well well let's just go electric everything um and, and not thinking about the nuances of actually how you get there and what it means to do that now for, for, for an automotive manufacturer to change its platforms um you know at the moment most a lot of the vehicles that you see on the roads have effectively had a you know, they've, they've used the existing ICE platform my internal combustion engine platform and and effectively retrofitted um, the electric powertrain onto that. Now that suits relatively well at the moment, but it's an it's an imperfect solution because they're not doing it efficiently from an EV perspective. Um, and the reason being is because it they have to spend billions of pounds in redesigning a platform purely for EV. And once you've done that, you can't go backwards from it. You can go for you can always take a, an ICE and go EV, but you can't go EV and back to ICE. It doesn't work. And, and so the manufacturers have to take a really conscious decision about do they do that because if they if they plug all their money into that there's no going backwards for them so hence why in the background they're happy to do it and that's that's something that you know again we talk about the nuance that the public might not necessarily understand that and how long it takes to bring a car to market you know each platform you know especially engine technology has a, a sort of a seven year lifetime hmm. in terms of across the different model ranges that they they release and you know that's a significant investment they put in. And then we've got the political stance on this one. Um, unfortunately, our political paymasters have fairly short careers in, in government, you know, whether it's sort of five years, maybe a little bit longer. And they will generally tend to support the, the ideas that they think will win them votes, irrespective of whether they are technically the correct ones or not. Uh, and unfortunately, if we, if we look at where this really stemmed from, especially for the UK perspective, the 2030 date, the, the very arbitrary date that was that was put in place by Boris Johnson, um, it was kicked off by COVID. Um, we all remember that. Um, and we all remember that industry as a whole shut down. And we all watched the news about how the planet was healing itself, you know, and, you know, we could see the, the CO2 re reducing, the quality of the air getting better and better. And it was all attributed simply to transportation, which was fundamentally wrong and flawed. Um, but the problem with that, it enabled green lobbyists um, to to get to get onto that and push the agenda to say, no, electrification is the only way, even though they didn't know actually how they were going to get there. Mm. And it was a great soundbite politicians mm. to get behind. And they go, well, look, look, this is going to win me votes. Look how, look how, if I support these 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 things um all of a sudden we're gonna fix the world overnight and of course there, some more things. reasoned data later came to light that looked more in detail and more scientifically at those lockdown periods and actually found that in city centers the co2 levels were unchanged entirely around the world which actually shows you that relative to all of the other terrible things humankind are doing to the planet driving your car is probably one of the lesser ones and when you look at the big factories, you know, uh, and some of the, the industry that, and, and some of the rainforest damage that we're creating, that's easy to understand, I think, isn't it? It, it, it is. And, and again, that's the thing. It's, it's about having re it's, it's about reasoning 
um, uh, you know, using, you know, causation, correlation, uh, you know, in, when you're looking at your stats and, and just stepping back and, and, and I suppose not being, trying not to be evangelical about your own beliefs and, and forcing that on, on, on others when actually, you know, they're just not right. And, and, and this is, again, it's, it's a political will. Um, unfortunately, you know, marketing from, you know, the politicians is, is very strong. Um, and again, most of the sort of the, the automotive industry and the oil industry stayed quiet during that period um, because of things like Dieselgate. They were frightened to, you know, to step up and say, you know, what? that data is just not correct, you know. Um, likewise, you know, sort of some of the unfortunate disasters from, you know, some from uh, oil exploration. Again, the you know the the oil companies wouldn't wouldn't step out uh, out of line uh, in case it would harm their their profile, and it just allowed this runaway narrative to to gain momentum. And again, going back to what Andrew was saying earlier on, when we sort of reimaged the you know the the, the the company, you know, from you know, Corazon, is because we were so keen in making sure that, although we were unknown from a public perspective, within our industry, we're we're, we're very well, you know, incredibly well trusted with with our expertise and, and and how we support people, and they knew that we'd been looking at these sustainable technologies, and and we just knew that we needed to prove that actually these were not only just a viable route to um, helping the environment. But actually, it was a necessity to help the environment, especially in the short term, because all you do when you try to switch from one one technology to another, you know, overnight, is you effectively end up front loading um, the carbon intensity of, of what you do. And do you do that to the point where you do it so much, actually, you break it, and there's no going back. And that's and so that's where we are today. And of course, you've just identified one of the problems there with this whole. Um, ULES scrappage scheme that we're seeing introduced at the moment, this whole drive to build and create whole swathes of new vehicles at a point when a vehicle is at its most carbon heavy is when it's being manufactured, right? Yep. You know, So now we're going to be throwing away all of these cars that have kind of paid their dues and done their time and making new ones. And ultimately, if we don't stop that cycle of consumption, we're going to be back to square one, even if everything is electric. Um, I think I always have to be really careful here because it is difficult territory when we start talking about electric vehicles and transport heritage and um, and classic cars in particular because as you've brilliantly outlined there the future surely has to be a suite of solutions a collection of solutions um, and I'm, I'm always keen to not make the argument for or against evs the same argument that's for or against historic vehicles staying on the road because ultimately they are two entirely different things entirely different reasons for existing you know of course mainly um, historic vehicles are not transport anymore in fact we know through fbhvc data that less than a quarter of one percent of the total miles traveled on the uk's roads is traveled by historic vehicles and i'm not talking about just cars there i'm talking about traction engines motorcycles lorries buses a lot um so as a sector the historic vehicle community is a tiny almost immeasurable amount of usage isn't it and i think we have to be careful not to end up in the defense of the future of historic vehicles arguing against modern transport and commuter traffic um, so that allows you i guess to focus your efforts as a business in catering for that future of transport heritage then I guess scale is slightly less of a concern in the long term for you. Uh, it, it is, and um, you know we're, we're not um, one of these major. Um, you know, we're not a major refiner in that respect. As I said, you know we make you know, thousands of very bespoke blends um, a year for, for all of our clients. The classic sector is a, is a niche market for us, um, and you know we can target that from a, a technical perspective. Um, you know, making fuels that are technically proficient can protect the asset of you know the vehicle um you know make sure its performance is there um, where they start to suffer from using uh, modern road fuels um but also target the i suppose the more moral conscious 
of using an historic vehicle. I mean, as, as you've already said, Wayne, the the overall environmental impact of a, a historic or heritage vehicle is minimal in the grand scheme of things. Most people, 500, maybe 2,000 miles a year tops in these vehicles. So they, they are hobbyist vehicles. Um, and, and they have a great deal of, of heritage built into them that you don't want to, you know, to see go. I mean, you, you know, there's plenty of companies around that are, are, are playing with, you know, electrifying um, sort of classic vehicles, which um, is, a, is another debate in itself. Um, not not least from um, a sustainability perspective, because actually we talked about paying off the carbon debt in in these older vehicles. If you go and that you know dump a, a motor or a battery into these vehicles, all of a sudden you've loaded it up again, and you know you've got another well a significant amount of time to pay it off because you don't use it quite so much. Mm. So, but you know to get back to the point around you know the, that moral moral side of it, um, you know from from a user's perspective, yes, people are under pressure. Um, we we do hear it from owners where you know their children or grandchildren saying, do you know you shouldn't be driving that around anymore, it's polluting. Well, actually, the, these the whole point of these fuels is that actually they are in effect making it potentially significantly greener to the environment than uh, someone's brand new EV. Uh, and if we can protect those vehicles through the technology of how we produce our fuels, then then more the better. Um, you know, we keep them going for um, a significantly longer time. Andrew, just to bring you back in here, as you we've heard from David there, it is quite a a complicated um, sort of technology to understand from the layman's perspective. Is this one of your challenges as a business um, pushing forward this new technology is to get the time with people to help them to understand this, not just the general public, but those in leadership roles as well? Is that a challenge that you're finding as you go forward as a business? It, it absolutely is a challenge, yes, <clears throat> but one that we have risen to because we sort of feel it's very much, well, it serves our purpose to do so, but we also actually, I think, feel a, sort of a moral obligation um, to do so, um, you, you know, to protect um, what we do as, as uh, you know, a contributor going, going forwards. And um, I, I think it is more important to try and educate those who are in positions of power and influence for them to therefore be able to um, you know affect policy going forward so that they do understand actually that um, you know single technology solution is not necessarily the best in terms of achieving you know the ultimate outcome but also an outcome in the shortest possible time frame and time time is of the essence here as as we all know um you know we're walking we're working on a very short time frame to try and achieve a significant reduction and therefore i think we should be embracing every <clears throat> every opportunity and therefore every technology to be able to do so rather than essentially sort of focusing all of our efforts on one um, which actually, <clears throat> in pursuing that that avenue of technology, could actually be sort of self-defeating because the carbon investment in that is so significant up front. And we, we will actually utilise our entire carbon budget by just trying to make that switch before we've actually generated any benefit. And so I think... You know, we do have to embrace the other technologies. And, we, and and as I say, it is very much our duty to sort of be able to demonstrate how that can be done. And I think coming back on a point that was discussed a little bit earlier, Wayne, around, um, around policy, I think when, <clears throat> you know, significant policies such as the ban or the prospective ban on the sale of internal combustion engines is brought in, it has to be explained very simply to the majority of users out there. And one of the justifications for this was around tailpipe emissions. And the fact that if we eradicate tailpipe emissions, we will create much cleaner environment, particularly in urban areas for the population. Now that, that actually is a very justifiable cause to, to want to do that. Um, but 
the ends the end result does not justify the means in actual fact um, because there are such significant consequences of adopting that approach it means that you ignore very important aspects of the overall life cycle of of a vehicle if you just look at tailpipe emissions and also by just looking at tailpipe emissions you necessarily actually almost sort of <coughs> in, sort of achieve or sort of um, ensure that you cannot look at other technologies which automatically have tailpipe emissions they are they, they are immediately banned in effect you know not least of all you know discussion around hydrogen as an alternative fuel that's not something that we we get involved in but obviously it is still another technology but again it would fail the tailpipe emissions test um as do sustainable fuels that we work with and so you know we are actually working to sort of try and broaden the you know the, the sort of the uh, yeah the horizon really of um how we look at the overall um justification for the technologies going forward in terms of the fact that you can't just put a box around something and take that as as the means you've got to look at the full life cycle of whatever technology it might be and what the impact therefore is over over that entire life cycle um in inner city and urban areas um a reduction on tail or a, a ban on tailpipe emissions is not such a bad thing but that can actually still be achieved through a combination of technologies and we and we very much argue that hybrid technology actually is a means of achieving that and possibly a much more efficient means of achieving an overall um, beneficial impact than concentrating on just solely ev or perhaps solely ice going forwards you know they both have very um, strong um, benefits to it and you can bring that together um, to sort of get the best of both worlds in effect going forwards. I guess in the media world we live in as well we our biggest challenge with arguing these points is always that we can't do something as attention grabbing as sitting in the middle of a road or daubing an Aston Martin dealership in orange paint it needs considered reason discussion and understanding of a manufacturing and scientific process which the media hasn't got time for and most people on the street haven't got time to listen to either and I think that's probably the biggest challenge but what has really changed is that no one is coming at this debate anymore from a point of denying that climate change is a problem or denying that any of us have to do something really urgently and quick these are all really useful viable solutions for particular parts of transport and energy usage um, that we need to we need to resolve really i think that's been the major change in probably the debate over the last 20 or so years hasn't it no one's denying there's a problem but actually there are other ways of solving this that enable us to keep doing and living in some of the ways that we enjoy living and it's also the big change is that it's not theoretical anymore you are actually running historic vehicles on this fuel it is being proven tell us what happened last weekend we were fueling a number of vehicles that did run at Goodwood Revival. There was a whole race that was running on sustainable fuel, and, and we applaud that, even if we didn't necessarily supply all of the fuel for that specific race. But we were fueling many cars at, at, at the Revival. Um, and what what we see, and, and you, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about the, the classic car sector as a, as a very specific sector where we can um, obviously look to promote um, sustainable fuels, um, uh, you know, to sort of achieve longevity um, in, in terms of those vehicles, um, but we sort of see it as a as, uh, as a bit more than just sort of a commercial opportunity. I mean, yes, we're a commercial concern, and therefore we're always looking to turn something into a commercial opportunity. But the classic car sector to us is is it's a very discerning sector, and it's also um, uh, you know it's a group of um, fuel users who are very keen to understand and therefore support a cause, um, and they tend to be you know individuals who um, 
uh, are quite influential, who uh, move in circles where they do actually interact with those who perhaps influence policy. Um, and so, um, uh, you, you know, there is, you know, an opportunity there for us to use that particular sector and those particular users to help us as well to promote the cause of, of sustainable fuels. And that has, that I think has worked very much in terms of the media attention that there has already been around actually applying sustainable fuels into the classic car sector. I mean, it has had a huge amount of attention in social media channels, in um, media articles, magazines, um, and, and the like, and I think will continue to do so. Um, and that in itself is really, really actually probably worth more than actually the commercial gain that anybody might get out of that. So you've already just sort of said it's actually a very small sector in, it, in itself. Um, and, but actually it's sort of can be used as a catalyst for bigger change in, in other areas. I think, I think David may have a point. He just wants to chip in on this one as well as a, a, around, around the Goodwood Revival. Well, go on, David. Um, well, no, I, I'm just going to say, obviously, that the, there's multiple vehicles there that are running. I mean, I mean, this is actually one of the challenges that we we, we see with this this industry um, is that a lot of these vehicles, because they're all, all running, quite, some of them are running quite exotic types of fuels, and um, so therefore we're sort of working within that. Although we've got three um, grades of fuels that we've released, um, we still do a lot of bespoke work, and therefore some of these cars still need some uh, fairly unique fuels that we need, we need to continue to develop for, for those specifically. But again, that's their ongoing conversations that we have with them. Um, and, you know, this isn't a journey that, you know, we've got to go, right, that's it. Um, you, know, the, you know, that's the end kind of thing. You know, it, it, we are still very much, you know, going, well, where, what's the right path for this? How, you know, how much do we need to change sort of fuels? How many, how many sort of grades do we need? And, um, you know, it, it, it's... Um, yeah, it, it's a journey. Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll continue to develop and improve and and introduce new technologies um, as as we go forward. You know, we're we're not just sitting still um, as, as 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 no one should. You know, we should always be looking to to improve. Um, you know what we're doing, and and that's exactly what we will do. And it's, it's part of the whole messaging around the brand that we've got with the Sustain Classic is that yes, you know, we've got some fuels there of varying sustainability. But we're very, very clear that um, it is not perfect at the moment. And anyone that seems that you know says that they have a perfect solution is simply not telling the truth. And, that, and that's why we need to be very transparent. We need to be open with with everyone, all, all users, um, all lobbyists, all policy advisors, the public. Is that it's not a perfect solution, but there is no perfect solution. But we are we are a significant way ahead than, mm. than what some may well may well think. Mm. And of course, having the visibility of events like the Goodwood Revival, like some of the um, things you've done down at Bista Heritage, like the work that you've done with the HCVA, and, and with us over at the FBHVC as well, of course, outside of this podcast, regular listeners will know that lobbying is close to my heart because I am communications director for the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs. Um, it's an important part of our work to make sure that we're not just saying no to new policies, but actually we work on a way for classic cars and historic vehicles in general to coexist with whatever our future of transport looks like. Um, so what's your vision then, talking to perhaps one of our listeners who owns a, I don't know, Series 1 XJ6 or a V12 E-Type's probably a good one, and absolutely no way wants to change that lovely V12 over for an electric motor, absolutely not, thank you very much. But how is your vision, your sort of dream in the future as to how they can keep that car on the road with your technology is it a pump in the garden is it commercially available how do you see this playing out in an ideal world so um well i'd say it is commercially available um i we are proud to to say um that we we were the first company to have a dedicated pump at Bista heritage um with sustainable fuel in it um, so you can turn up, much like you do with a normal retail station, uh, you know, four quarters you do today, fill up your car uh, and maybe a jerry can or two and, and away you go. Um, so 
you know, our vision is that we, you know, we're trying to replicate that um, around around the country. Um, we've had a lot of inquiries right across Europe, and I think right across Europe, we've had inquiries right across the globe. Um, you know, as far down south as as the South Island of New Zealand. Um, you know, there are people asking for these fuels, and, and we are working with them. So I, you know, for those that have got those wonderful V12s, um, uh, I very much see the availability of fuels getting better and better. Um, you know, as I said, throughout 24, we're hoping to have more of these pumps that are dotted around the UK at least. Um, it's available in drums as well. Uh, and I think as we push out and look in, into the niche market, um, eventually the, the, the larger oil companies will start to catch up and offer lot of fuels that are are going to be, you know, that will certainly target the mainstream um, because only they really can. Um, and again, that will allow us to, to concentrate on these these niches, like you know, historic um, historic vehicle collections. So, do we need pumps and guns? I'm not suggesting that. I don't think it's ultimately the right thing to do. There's always issues around storing fuel at home, um, um, but you know. Uh, you know, it. You know, you clearly can store some fuel at home. It's just about the, the volumes of that. It should. We're aiming for a user experience that is similar to what they have now, mm. um, and therefore, uh, yeah, absolutely. Again, those people that have got them generally tend to do these car car club meets, maybe, uh, and we often go to some of these events where again, you could even buy fuel there as part of the as part of the setup. Mm. Ultimately, it's avoiding how things were the dawn of the motor car when Sir William Lyons and William Wormsley started uh, the Jaguar company as uh, Swallow Coach Builders and Swallow Sidecars in 1923. They would have had to have bought their fuel from a chemist's. They'd have had to have popped down boots for their petrol back in the day. We don't want to return to that, do we? And I guess, ultimately, as the technology develops, you attract more attention and thus more investment and more belief it's getting to that critical point at which scale gives you viability in terms of affordability as well isn't it it, it, it is and and you know w w where where scalability and affordability crossover is, is always a difficult one especially when you look at the you know time scales of that i mean there's always going to be the element of early adopters and and you know i can't emphasize enough how important the early adopters are for this um, those that have the means to be able to take these on board, have the pressures. Maybe you've got collectors that are keeping vehicles under a company structure where the, you know, important for ES, you know, environmental and social governance ratings, actually the fuel that they use is a, is a big impact. Sustainable fuels is the easiest, the quickest, best way to get those ratings uh, better. So they'll be the early adopters, I think. Um, and, and, and again, those that actually just, just view the sustainability aspect of it just being fundamentally more important than anything else and, and are willing to to pay for that once that gets running yeah things will scale up and the cost will eventually come down and and at the same time we'll have more people coming into the market you know it won't just be us um i i, I think it would be poor if it was just us doing that um you know there are you know there, there will be other people um, that, that get in there and and help us with um, help us with our job, which is to to bring sustainable fuels to a much wider audience. A final question to you both: How much do you think does the enjoyment of transport heritage matter to us as a society, as human beings, as people who need to look back in order to progress? And um, how can we help you to help us keep our cars on the road? Um, start with you, uh, David, first. Uh, wow, um, so it's a quite a loaded, loaded question. I mean, you know, let, let's let's look back at the last hundred and fifty years. Our industrial revolution. Um, it was it was built on oil. It was built on on the ability to have mobility, um, and trying to change that overnight is just impossible. Um, and therefore, you know, we've got to consider the technologies that we spent so long building up. They are still very much viable going forward, and 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 they will be. I I still see internal combustion engines being used for many decades to come uh, going forward. Um, and the, you know the way that we can support that is to make sure that we have policy that 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 is balanced across all technologies um, that supports that supports sustainable liquid fuels, even hydrogen, electrification. 
um, whatever it happens, the, the next new technology, what is it going to be? Is it electric? Is it cold fusion? We don't really know where, where transportation is going to go over the next sort of 50 to 100 years. You know, it, you know, we may not even have thought of it at, at this point in time. Um, but it, it just needs this open-minded, um, pragmatic approach to each each transport application that we have. We all do things slightly differently, and therefore we can't have one single solution for everyone. Uh, it all is all different. Some people like to take two wheels and, a, and cycle under their own power, but those that are casting families around, clearly that's not going to happen. So um, it's just about being open, understanding that we're not all the same. Some of us live in the countryside. We're lucky enough to live in the countryside, should I say, and therefore trans public transport is quite frankly useless. So um, you know, I'll, I'll keep my uh, I'll keep my four wheels and the internal combustion engine that drives them. And Andrew, heritage does it matter? How do we save it? Well. Uh- I think well, in the simplest way to answer that one is by sort of saying you only had to really experience a weekend at Goodwood Revival to understand how much it matters to, you know, a large proportion of the population. And, you know, the public that attended that event were not all classic car owners. There were many families that came down, young children who were just as excited um, and interested to experience the event and see the cars running around the circuit, you know, and that's, in many respects, it's to hear them. I hesitate to say a little bit to smell them, but there is a, there is an associated smell that goes with them, but just to sort of see the beauty of, you know, those, those vehicles, um, you know, and how, uh, that has changed over many, many generations, um, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, will continue to live on and indeed change as well. And that that in itself, I suppose, emphasizes the need that it's all about adapting as, as, as we go forwards. And, you know, the world is changing. We've got to change with it. Um, and so, you know, it's not... Um, a question of trying to hang on to the past, but it's also not a question of trying to dispense with the past. It's taking the past with us into into the future. Um, you know, and, and that's partly why we call our sort of sustained classic fuels fuels for the future. Um, if you had seen our stand at Goodwood Revival, you would have <clears throat> understood it did take a little bit to understand the connection, but we had we had the DeLorean back to the future car on our st- on our stand. The connection being that with our fuels, we are trying to take old classics, whether you wish to call a DeLorean an old classic, that's up to you. We're trying to take old classics back, back to the future. We're, we're trying to take them with us and preserve that going forward. Not, and it, it's a, I suppose it's a little bit more about preserve. We're trying to ensure that they can continue to perform, but in a sustainable way. So, you know, I I think it's hugely important to everybody that we do protect this um, going forwards and we do ensure that it continues to survive. We should finish with a small disclaimer then that uh, when you are using Coratin fuels that uh, they aren't necessarily going to turn your classic into a time machine at 88 miles per hour. Uh, that wasn't what we were promising, but uh, it's been a fantastic interview. Indeed. Thank you for the both of you for doing that. It's been really an interesting insight and actually for a change... Uh, a real nice piece of optimism for the future. Let's not forget that the historic vehicle industry is worth £18 billion to the UK economy. Um, we're bigger than the fishing industry in the UK, which is quite crazy to imagine, actually. And so it does matter. It matters to those who work in the industry, but it also matters to those of us who have this as our lifestyle, as our vocation, as our main passion in life, and also to enjoy heritage and tradition for transport just in the same way that we enjoy old buildings and bits of coastline protected um, for future generations as well so we should also protect the future of historic transport and these guys are helping to make our classics sustainable with sustainable classic fuels there we go see what i did there Uh, where can we find out more information uh, on this andrew if people want to do a bit more reading up after the interview well, we have a dedicated web- website actually on Sustain Classic, 
um, sustainclassic.com. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, um, I think, follow us on the social media channels as well. There is an abundance of information that is being posted regularly on those, whether that be LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I, I shouldn't be the one to talk about this. I'm an absolute Luddite when it comes to social media, actually, I have to say. David's probably a little bit better. But there is a huge amount of information available to be able to follow and keep yourself you know, informed, up to date with what's with what's going on, and we will continue to post more and more about what we're doing. But also, hopefully, in the not too distant future, the availability of the sustained classic fuels as as well as we try and roll it out more and more to make it more readily available to the um, you know, to the classic car user. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all those links on the podcast description part of the podcast page at jcpodcast.com for you as well. And of course, we'll continue to follow the story both here on the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast and within Jaguar Enthusiast magazine, of course, which comes out every month and is free to Jaguar Enthusiast Club members. But for now, uh, thank you so much to David Richardson and Andrew Wilson from Corriton Fields. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast podcast do keep in touch with us though and let us know about your own jaguar stories via the contact form at jcpodcast.com where you can also sign up to receive new episodes of this podcast automatically for free by subscribing via your favorite podcast provider we're on them all google apple spotify pick which one works for you you can also join the jaguar enthusiast club online by clicking the join now button on the top right hand side of the podcast page at jcpodcast.com when you join you'll also get our big chunky glossy lovely 180 page monthly magazine it's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.